up to the book of Samuel, the book of Samuel. And as you're turning there, let me, let me pray. Father God, we come before you now in this moment of, of opening the scriptures to look for understanding, look for uh, enlightenment, not just from the words on the page, Father, but through the Spirit speaking through the words to our hearts. Lord, we know that the word is uh, alive and active and cutting, uh, cutting uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, Father. And so we ask that you would uh, work on our hearts this morning. Uh, may we be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus this morning because of the, the word being applied. So pray you help us uh, submit to the text this morning in all the ways you would have us do that. Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I, I wonder, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people are talking these days. I don't know if you notice or take, take note of these sorts of things, but uh, what does a good leader look like? And in a sense, that is the question of the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. It's a, uh, you see the, the story opens up with a, um, a, a void or an emptiness of good leadership for the people of God. Uh, the first Samuel picks up where the book of Judges ends, which is everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. Right? There's no godly leader. There's no prophet, no ruler, no king above them. And they're looking, looking for a leader. But I wonder about our day. What does a good leader look like today? Well, you might say, well, Jesus himself, which I would say, of course, he is the, the image, the person who uh, defines what good leadership is and he embodies it fully and yet how many of you uh, had Jesus over for lunch last night or last yesterday afternoon I wonder how many of you um, sat and talked with him and asked him what his thoughts were on the southern border or marriage or or any of those sorts of things what does a good leader look like you see in our day and age we're a lot like where the book of Samuel begins Everyone seems to be doing what's right in their own eyes. Uh, there's a, a lack of good leadership both in the church and in our culture today. And so the text this morning, and, and in 1 Samuel chapter 16, what we see is exactly what the Lord defines what a good leader is and what we should look for. So before we dive into the text, let me, uh, let me re- uh, start as a sort of review of, of how we ended up in 1 Samuel 16, right? Our sermon series is God's grace to flawed people, which is the overarching theme that runs and uh, is in, contained within every line of the text of 1 Samuel. Uh, but, but really, the, the story of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it's one book in the Old Testament. Uh, it's anchored, as you'll remember this, uh, it's anchored in the song or the, uh, the, the prayer of Hannah in chapter 2. Right, so, so all the themes that Hannah sings about or prays about in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, all of those themes are what we should be looking for as the reader throughout the, throughout the story of 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, the themes of that song highlight uh, things like exalting in the Lord and rejoicing in his salvation. Uh, it says that there's none holy like the Lord. It says the prideful and arrogant will be brought down and destroyed. It also says, while those are, who are lowly and hungry will be raised up and fed, the rich will become poor, while the poor become rich. Then it ends, the song ends with the, the enemies of the Lord being broken into pieces, but the strength of the Lord being given to his chosen, anointed king. 
These are the themes of that song that, that pervade, and the author puts that at the beginning of the story so that you know these are the themes that you should be looking for as you read. You should see where does God rise up the lowly? Where does God tear down the prideful? Where do the rich become poor and the poor become rich? Where does the enemies of the Lord become broken into pieces, but the strength of the Lord's anointed being raised up? To remind you of where we are in this story, you will recall that in chapter 8, the people have requested a king for themselves. They request a king to rule over them and to fight their battles for them. And as that chapter made clear, there was, this was not merely a rejection of Samuel as their leader, but rather a rejection of the Lord. The Lord had been ruling over his people since the beginning. But now they didn't no longer wanted the Lord, they wanted a king, someone they could touch, someone they could send out to fight their physical battles. They didn't want God, but rather wanted to be like the nations that surrounded them. And therefore, the Lord gave them what they wanted. He gives them what they want in the person of Saul, who we are told later that uh, Saul is uh, is more tall, taller, and more handsome than all the other men. And for a brief moment, for a couple chapters, Saul appears to be the kind of man and the kind of ruler who will rule well over them. You remember that Samuel gave the people in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, he gives them a warning from the Lord that if you insist, on having a king for yourself who is not the Lord, then you have to understand that this Lord will not, this king will not give to you, but rather this king will take, take a number of things from you. In other words, it, he would not rule after God's own heart, but rather a king would rule after his own heart. And so we begin to see uh, Saul, he starts off uh, to be the kind of man, to be the kind of ruler who appears as if he will follow the Lord in his rulership over the people. And this is, of course, until we begin to see the cracks in the foundation of Saul's life, but more importantly, we see the cracks in the foundation of his leadership. You see, we're told in chapter 13 that Saul's impatience and refusal to listen and obey the word of God led to Samuel saying that the kingdom will be removed from him. Specifically, we're told that the Lord is looking for a man after his own heart, and that the Lord has commanded this man to be prince over the people of God But because of Saul's disobedience, he has proved himself not to be that man. In other words, Saul is not the man who is after God's heart. Then over the rest of chapters 14 and 15, we see this play out in a variety of ways as Saul over and over again proves that he is not this kind of ruler. He's not the kind of leader who will faithfully lead the people of God based upon the word of God. Which leads us into, if you have your Bibles, uh, open to first, uh, first Samuel, look at, uh, and you're in chapter 16, just look back at the two verses prior to chapter 16. It says this at First Samuel 15, verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This leads us into our text this morning of uh, three points, and then I'll be out your way. We see, number one, that there's a new beginning. A new beginning, chapter 16, brings us. We also see what the measure of a man, and more specifically, the measure of a godly king will be. And then finally, we see, see that this is a king who will heal. A king who heals. So let's begin. Uh, a new beginning. Look at verse 1 of chapter 16 with me. This is God's word. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, 
since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. You see, the text picks up right where it left off at the end of chapter 15. But what isn't indicated is exactly how much time has passed. You see, we move right from Samuel grieving over Saul and the end of chapter 15 to the beginning of uh, verse 1 of 16 to the Lord saying to Samuel, how long do you plan to grieve? How long do you plan to stay in this state of lamentation? The idea here is that Samuel is in some sort of state of depression, a state of torment and agony. But notice the Lord's response. He says, how long will you grieve over him? Since I have rejected him. It's almost as if the Lord is rebuking Samuel for Samuel failing to come to the grips with the reality that it's the Lord who has brought this about to begin with. It is the Lord who has decided to reject Saul. So we're not told how much time has passed. Here is Samuel or, or Saul, Samuel uh, uh, lamenting and grieving over the fact that it appears that Saul has lost the anointing. He's lost the kingdom. He's lost the kingship. We're not told why Samuel's grieving, just that he is. And then the Lord rebukes him and says, how, how long are you going to stay in your pity party? How long are you going to continue to moan and groan? This is massively important for us to understand in our own day. You see, um, because oftentimes we find ourselves coming to a situation in which, uh, where we are driven, driven to grief and depression and anxiety all the while, we've ended up in that place because the Lord has put us there. Think about it. Last week, we had a new members class with five uh, out of six people who want to become members of our church. And early on in the meeting, uh, I asked uh, how old everyone was, uh, to which um, the, the men quickly answered, and the women were a little bit more hesitant, but then they did. Uh, and do you know uh, how, how, how old they were? I'll just give you some rough numbers. Uh, uh, all of them were under the age of 30. And that's incredible. Let me tell you why. Because when I became pastor here four years ago, nearly to the day, uh, do you know how many of our members were under 30 years old? You probably just want to take a guess. Those two. It was my wife and myself. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> uh, we became the youngest members of Calvary Baptist Church. Now, now, this is important because the reality, the reality of a church that consists of primarily gray heads. And read, not, I didn't say old. But gray heads, and it's uh, older, wiser. The reality of a church that is mostly older, wiser people is stepping into this kind of reality. One of the things that I constantly heard was, you know, our, our church is dying, Pastor. Now, I don't know that I was trying to think this week if, if anyone actually said those words. And I'm not sure they did. But here's the things that they did say. Um, they, they said things like, we have no younger people taking church seriously anymore. Or we need younger people to step up. One of my per personal favorites was pastor. I remember the day when fill in the blank. 
Now, there is a time and a place for grieving and lamenting. But if that grieving and lamenting is never then turned to the Lord in submission, then it is a grieving that is ultimately a refusal to trust the situation in which God has placed us. So the reality of the Lord willing, we will be adding like six new members to our church all under the age of 30, which, by the way, is an increase in the church membership of about 22%. It's absolutely astonishing to see what the Lord can do in a place where there once was no hope. You say, well, it feels pretty empty today, Pastor. Well, lots of people are sick, and we're a small church. This is the reality. I was talking with a pastor friend the other day, um, also a, a small church pastor. I said, isn't it amazing that, like, uh, uh, small churches can go through, like, 40 to 50% swings in member, uh, like a church attendance week to week, and nobody bats an eye? There's not in, like, oh, my gosh, what's the underlying sin in the, in the church, right? It's none of that. It's just, like, this is the dynamics of a small church. But if you were at a large megachurch, and all of a sudden, 40 to 50% of the attendants didn't show up the previous week. There would be grave concern, grave, under, uh, what in the world's going on here? This is just par for the course of small churches. And praise the Lord for it. You see, this is what the Lord is saying to Samuel in verse 1. He says, uh, will you go on in your depression forever? Will you stay in your state of hopelessness forever? He said, I'm the one who's caused this to come about. Will you trust me? Do you not realize that it is I myself who have caused this thing to come about? That's what he's asking Samuel. And so then he instructs him to get up and get busy. He sends him to find a king among the sons of Jesse. Samuel, realizing the optic of this, can't go well, right? Like imagine, like, uh, there's, there's a king on the throne. His name is Saul. You're the one who said, hey, like, uh, you're not the guy. God's going to raise up another one. And then imagine, like, you know, a couple weeks, a couple months later, strolling into a town and be like, hey, I'm here to look for the new king while there's still a king on the throne. Sam was like, this is not going to go well for me, Lord. What do you want me to do? And so the Lord tells him, he says, well, we'll take a heifer, right? Go make a sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, he, he wouldn't be inviting Jesse to a new crowning ceremony of a king, but rather to a simple sacrifice. Now, I don't have time to get into the ethical analysis of this moment, uh, but, but just in passing, let me say the Lord is encouraging Samuel. To, to, what, what he's encouraging him to do is to use a form of deception, but not involving a, a straight lie. And then, then we see this become a, a major tactic, a major tool in David's belt throughout the rest of the story. Where on a number of occasions in his dealings with Saul, he will not tell the whole truth. Now, many of you grew up on it with parents. I know my parents told me, uh, you tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me, God, right? Anybody grow up like that? Yeah, well, what's the Lord saying here? Oof. Is the Lord encouraging dishonesty? That's something to wrestle with. Anyways, uh, this is exactly what Samuel does in verse 4 and 5. He goes into, uh, into Bethlehem. And you can feel the tension, right? It says he shows up into the town, and there are the elders, and the, it says like the, they are fearfully trembling, and what's the question that they asked Samuel? They said, hey, 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 have you come in peace? Or are you here for something else? It's like they can feel the nervousness, the tension in the moment as the prophet of God strolls into the city. And so Samuel says, I'm, I'm here for peace. This is, a, this is a new beginning, right? Chapter 16 is a new beginning for the people of God and for the kingdom of God. But then we see what, what the measure of a man is in verse 
uh, 6 through 13. After Jesse and his sons are consecrated, they come to where uh, Samuel was for the sacrifice. And what we see is that Samuel is looking for a certain type of man. But the Lord is looking for an altogether different type of man. Look at verse 6. When they came, he looked on uh, Eliab and thought, Surely, surely, the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called uh, Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And Samuel and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made uh, Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now what's interesting here is Samuel says uh, to himself in verse 6, surely this is the guy. Look, I mean, just look at this. Look at this son of Jesse, strong, tall. You know he's tall because uh, it must have been apparently tall because the Lord corrects him in verse 7. He says, don't look on his appearance nor the height of his stature. Remember, these are things which the author of the book of Samuel has highlighted for you, uh, the reader, about Saul in chapter 8. Remember, Saul was said to be a, a head taller than all the other men, more beautiful than all of them. So the Lord now makes explicit what has been implicit all along throughout the book of Samuel, which is that statement at the end of verse 7. Look at it again. It says, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now this verse has always been fascinating to me. Just always always fascinating to me. In my early Christian days, um, I, I often used this verse for uh, appearing for, for as a defense for appearing sloppy or lazy in my own Christian walk. Uh, one example, um, <laughs> I was uh, we were at this, this uh, it was at this church uh, um, uh, for a cleanup day, like a spring cleaning day. It was all in the yard. And this church is highly legalistic. Couldn't wear. Uh, all the men had to wear pants, all the women had to wear skirts, uh, if you were on the church property at all. And so I show up on a Saturday to help uh, clean up the grounds, and there I am, a college student, in my gym shorts. To which one of the, uh, the youth pastors at the time approached me, I, I knew and loved, had a great relationship with me, and he looked at me and he said, what are you doing? To which I said, what do you mean? He said, you're wearing shorts. He said, like, they had this big sign on the building, like, it says, uh, men are not allowed to wear shorts. It's, it's, it's weird, I'll tell you. Anyway, um, I, I said, it's hot out here, brother. It's like 90 degrees. What do you mean, why, why are you wearing jeans? He said, he, I'll never forget this. He says, what if a deacon drives by and sees you? To which I said, if a deacon drives by and he doesn't stop to actually help, we've got bigger problems, Pastor. Anyway, me and my friend, uh, who was also there helping, we got in our car and left. Uh, and I remember driving away thinking, uh, thinking this verse. Well, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Now, is that a proper application of this passage, of this text? Probably not. But in my uh, younger college, willful days, did I, did I feel justified by this verse? Absolutely. 
And this verse continues to be used to justify all manner of wicked and ungodly things. Furthermore, it's often used as a verse meant to shut down godly rebuke and correction. But is this what God means? Does God mean that, that there's no external standards? That all that matters is the feelings of your heart? That there's no external standards to which we should then walk? Then the context of the story, no, God says this to Samuel because Samuel is looking for some outward signs of physical dominance. He's looking for a tall dude, looking for perhaps an above dude, someone who looks like he should be respected, someone of a physical dominance and superiority. That's who Samuel's looking for. And the Lord rebukes him yet again and says that this is not what he should be looking for because outward physical appearance does not necessitate a godly heart. In other words, he's saying, Samuel, we just did this. We just did the same song and dance with Saul, taller than all the others, more attractive than all the others. He says, it's not what we're looking for. Because outward physical appearance does not necessitate a godly heart. However, we've taken this verse in the modern church to mean that all outward appearances have nothing to do with the posture of the heart. But this isn't true either. Because a good heart cannot produce evil fruit. Listen to these words again from Luke chapter 6, which I read in your hearing this morning. Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth So while it is not true that all outwardly physical appearances of seemingly good fruit come from a good heart, it is true that a truly good heart cannot produce bad fruit. This is why the Proverbs say in chapter 4, verse 23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. And so this is the measure that that, that the Lord is putting before Samuel, saying, no, 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 like it's, it's, it's me alone who can see the heart, right? I wonder, have you ever tried to look at someone's heart? It's, it's a hard thing. Have you ever tried to look at your own heart, the motives of your own heart? Aren't they always kind of mixed? At least it feels mixed. So then what is the measure of a man? What is the measure of a godly leader? Well, the verse tells us it's a man after God's own heart. Well, what does that mean, pastor? What does it mean then to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? Does it mean someone who doesn't sin? Or at least if they do sin, it's not a major sin. Well, it can't mean that because here's David who, who God says, this is the man after my own heart, who as we know from the story from First and Second Samuel, that time and time again, David screws up in a sometimes majorly catastrophic ways. So it can't mean that because David, whom uh, whom God picks in just a few verses, has some major issues right later in the book of Samuel when we see him in major sins. You see, King David being designated by God as a man after God's own heart is about God choosing David, not David's character. You see, the phrase, after my own heart, it was commonly used in the ancient Near uh, Eastern time frame. It, it simply means, this is the person I've chosen. When a god or a king uh, chose someone to rule for them, he would describe the successor as a man after his heart. When God utilized this phrase to describe David, he was not commenting on David's stellar character. 
He was, all, he was alerting the audience that David was the chosen ruler of his people. You see, God is the one with the wisdom and the authority to designate this son of Jesse as the man after his own heart. Every time David commits egregious sins, he is kept in office. But Saul wasn't. You say, well, what's the difference? The difference is, this is whom God chose. Look back at verse 1. Look back at verse 1. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For, now watch this, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now this is important. God is saying that I've chosen someone. I want you, Saul, or you, Samuel, to go get him. That I've chosen him. Go get him. I don't know if you remember chapter 8 when the people are the ones choosing Saul. God is not the one choosing Saul. The people said, we want to pick a people for ourselves. You see the difference? Saul was never God's pick. He was never God's pick, but David was because David was picked by God. And this points us to uh, one of the, the most notable features of the Old Testament narrative, which is that the, all the major figures of the Old Testament are all broken and busted dudes, incredible sinners, and yet they remain God's instruments in advancing the redemptive story because God ordained it to be so. In like manner, then, you and I are chosen by God, have confidence in his promise that he will keep us as his own. You see, Ephesians 1 says that God has predestined us for adoption, and we have complete assurance that no sin can take God's favor from us. All former, present, and future sins on your part have been paid by Christ on the cross, and we can confidently enjoy God's abounding love. The point is that our character, who you and I think that we are, right? Think about the measure of a man. Is it, is it uh, not sinning? Is it uh, trying to keep our ways pure? No, it's who is God picked? Who, who is after God's own heart? God has already picked you, Christian. Knowing that God chooses us despite our glaring deficiencies is precisely what then shapes our character. You see, as Christians, you and I, men and women after God's own heart. We are men and women after God's own heart. I wonder if you've ever considered yourself in this light. And we are men and women after God's own heart because David would be a foreshadow to the man who would come, who would have no sin, who would live and walk perfectly before the face of God all the days of his life. He would be the one who would rule in the throne of David forever. Jesus is the better better David, and Jesus was chosen and loved by God the Father. Therefore, when Christ saves you, listen, when Christ saves you and calls you his own, makes you a son, makes you a daughter, he gives you a new heart. And it's from that heart then we begin to produce fruit that accords with the grace that we have been shown. So all this to answer, what is the measure of a man? The measure of a man is whether or not they are chosen in Christ and been given new hearts. It's not a matter of feeling or a matter of personal private devotion, but whether or not we follow the king of the universe. Finally, we see in the the last section of this passage, the the king who heals. Look at verse 12. Uh, Sorry, verse verse 14. We see this this king who is a king who heals. 
Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing, in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with him, with his, with his hand. And so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. You see, what happens in, chapter, uh, in this chapter, in verses 1 through 13, is a private anointing. From, from everything that we know from the text, Saul has no idea that this has actually went down. No idea. And then in verse 13, we're told that the spirit immediately rushes upon David. And then immediately in verse 14, we're told the spirit departed from Saul. So we see that the, at, the end of, at the end of the first section, we see the spirit coming upon uh, David in, in a special way because it says it stayed with him from that day on. This is the first time we see this play out because at every other time, you think of like Samson, the spirit visited Samson how many times? Three times, in case you didn't know that. He visited Saul three times. It says the Lord, uh, the, the spirit descended upon Saul. But all of those, every single time, was meant to rise up someone for a specific task. It was always meant to either be a prophet or to, 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 to take leadership or to lead in some way. But this is the first time we see it come upon David and stay. And we see that when it comes upon David, it then therefore leaves Saul. Moreover, uh, the, this verse says that Saul received from the Lord a harmful spirit to torment him. It's important here to know that this, uh, this harmful, or perhaps some of your translations say an evil spirit, is not what we should consider like the evil demonic spirits that we see running wild in the New Testament. But rather, it's a spirit from the Lord, which just simply doesn't bring peace. It brings trouble. And this trouble is most likely a type of anguish or depression, a type of melancholy. I think, that, I, think, I think it's that because in verse 23 it makes clear that music seems to be able to heal the state of depression that he's in, right? It's this type of refreshing music which is able to remove the harmful spirit from him. So we shouldn't think that like in, in Saul's like this moment is becoming uh, demonically possessed, right? It's that the Lord is sending upon Saul uh, a type of spirit which emphasizes and highlights the reality that Saul is no longer walking with God, but rather waging war against him. And one of the great ironies of this chapter is that Saul has no idea that the person he's about to bring into his court is the new anointed king. He has no understanding that the one he loves greatly, according to verse 21, is the one whom the Lord has already chosen. And so we have this private choosing of David, and we also have the public choosing of David. And it is this love for David on the part of Saul while he is unaware that David is being raised up to replace him, which introduces us to the entire second half of 1 Samuel, where we see this love-hate relationship begin to play out between these two men. 
What's beautiful in this passage is that though uh, we, the reader, know everything that's happened so far. We know everything about David being chosen by God. We know all about the spirit leaving Saul. And still, we see David enter into Saul's court and do what? He serves him. Refreshes his soul. This is a picture of the type of king whom Christ will be. The man who will become David's enemy is whom David is currently serving. In other words, we see that this king is the kind of king who would bring healing to his enemies. I know we aren't a loud, responsive church, but that was a great spot to say amen. This is the kind of king who would bring healing to his enemies. Jesus died between two common criminals, and the gospel tells us that at the beginning, both criminals were mocking and slandering Christ, mocking, ridiculing him. But throughout the suffering, as they inched closer and closer to death, one of the men uh, realized who Jesus was. Perhaps he figured out how to read, and he seen the sign above Jesus' head, which said, King of the Jews. But in that moment, when he realized who it was that hung beside him, his eyes were opened. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. At that moment, the man who was only a few hours early, an enemy of Christ, openly mocking him, now becomes his friend. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Consider the men around the foot of the cross. Those men who drove the nails into his hands, into his feet. Those who cast lots for his clothes, those who struck him and pulled the beard from his face, those who put a crown of thorns on his head. Enemies of Jesus, every one of them. And yet, what does Jesus say about them? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, Jesus openly prays for his Father to forgive them, to make them sons. We live in interesting times. Well, we have seen within our lifetimes the cultural shift away from uh, culture viewing Christianity as a positive good upon society into a type of a neutral zone where uh, the, the culture thinks that Christianity doesn't really help the problems, or, but they're not an active part of the problem. To where now for the last 10 years or so, the general consensus is that the church is primarily the problem. And throughout that transition, what has happened is that people are no longer trying to hide the fact that they're enemies of God. You see this in declining church attendance numbers. You see this in the celebration of cultural sins. You see this in the twisting of the definition of what it means to love your neighbor. And we wonder, well, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for the faithful Christian? To the Christian who wants to obey our Lord's command to make disciples of all nations. Well, for starters, it opens the door for being e able to easily point out how and in what ways we are enemies of God. And with that, allows the faithful Christian to know how to apply the good news of who God is and what God has done for his enemies. The, the word of the gospel, evangelion, right, it carries with it the sense of uh, a king sending a, a message to, uh, to a conquered people or to his, uh, to, his, uh, to his kingdom of, listen, we know what you've done. We know what you've done. We know the problems that you have raised against the king. And yet, the king has forgiven you. 
You see, too many of us view cultural society as uh, maybe if people were just in church, maybe if people were just be nicer to one another, but that doesn't fix the issue of the heart, does it? You see, at the heart level of it, what we find is that all of us, prior to Christ, were enemies of God. Enemies of God. That's where we stood. We were not indifferent to Jesus or the church. We were not friends with Jesus and the church. We were active enemies against the church. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 11, he says, such were some of you. This is after listening to a multitude of sins. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So God now dwells in our hearts. Enemies of God, think about it. How crazy is that? How crazy is it that God took his enemies and made them his sons? How crazy that God took those who would rebel against them and made them his daughters. And this is how we push back the darkness, friends. This is how we push Jesus' kingdom into all aspects of the world, by inviting the enemies of God in. You know how we don't do it? We don't do it by like, ah, you know, God really doesn't care about your problems. We don't do it by celebrating what God says is evil, by calling it good. We say, no, 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 like that is open, high-handed rebellion and tyranny against the good God creator of the universe. And yet, and yet, he's invited you in. This is, what, this is what David's doing in this chapter. Serving who will later become his enemy. So here we have the, this new beginning, right? And I wonder, where, wherever you're at in your walk with Christ, deep depression, deep, uh, deep torment, deep anguish, deep holding on to the sins of the past or the hurt of the past, whether someone's sinned against you or hurt you or whether you've hurt or sinned someone else, the Lord says, how long will you stay there? How long will you stay there? Up, follow me. God calls you to go. How long will you continue to look at the world around you and merely measure it, engage it by with what the world measures engages it? One of the most crazy things to me is we've allowed the culture to actually tell the church what to do. I don't know if you've realized this. We've allowed the world to tell the church whether or not it's effectively acting as the church. Have you realized this? Man, well, I was going to get into COVID, but we'll pass. Um, I'm running out. My, my timer's blinking. Maybe next week. Uh, we've allowed, we, we must measure what God sees. We must allow God to define what love is, what goodness is, what beautiful things are, not what man sees. And finally, we must continue to open up the doors to all the enemies of God. We must truly love them and invite them in. Not approving and accepting of them, but reminding and telling them the good news of Jesus, that he loves them and wants them to repent and obey the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, Lord, the, the image of Christ and David here. It is David to whom you will promise an everlasting kingdom, and it is Christ who sits on that everlasting throne. So, Father, Lord, may we... Uh, Look at David and see you, and then maybe walk as David walked. Maybe walk as Christ walked. 
Father, we need your help to do all this and so much more and the help of the Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.